Chapter 16 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Crimean War. The first time I ever heard a speech from Mr. Gladstone was on the 12th of October, 1853. It was on the occasion of the unveiling of a statue to Sir Robert Peel erected in front of the Royal Infirmary in Manchester. On that occasion, the freedom of the city was presented to Mr. Gladstone, and he delivered a speech in the town hall. That was a time when the Crimean War was impending, but did not seem yet quite a certain fatality, and I well remember how intense was the interest with which everybody waited for any hint as to the possibility of peace that might be given by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. The speeches made by Mr. Gladstone on that memorable day were worthy of the man whom it commemorated and of the man who was his most illustrious follower. I shall never forget the impression made on me by Mr. Gladstone's eloquence, and made still more, I think, by the sincerity and earnestness of the orator himself. Commemorative speeches are apt to be triumphs of phrase-making and of rhetoric and of nothing more. But in this instance the whole soul of the orator seemed to inspire the language of his speech. Mr. Gladstone appeared to be simply pouring out his heart and thought to a sympathetic audience. He spoke of Peel as he alone was qualified to speak of him, but I think everyone who listened to Mr. Gladstone that day felt convinced in his mind that a greater statesman and a greater orator than Peel had risen up to take the foremost place in the political life of England. As regards the Crimean War, it was plain enough that Mr. Gladstone was only hoping against hope. He still persisted in a lingering longing to look for the maintenance of peace but nobody who heard him could have doubted for a moment that Mr. Gladstone's belief in the possibility of the maintenance of peace was of faith which seemed very like despair. Soon after, the country drifted, to use a famous expression, into the war with Russia, and on March 27, 1854, the public announcement of the war was made. I am not now going back to the old story of the Crimean War. The country had been lashed into a passion for war, and there is no argument for any European population at all events when that passion for war lights up. The war had been opposed in the most earnest and vigorous manner by men like Cobden and Bright, some of Bright's speeches against the war policy are models of reason, of feeling, and of eloquence. But they only served to make Mr. Bright unpopular for the moment with the majority of his countrymen, and he was burnt in effigy in several places as a friend of Russia. Everybody knew that Mr. Gladstone was, above all things, a votary of peace, of economy, and of everything which could add to the national prosperity. For him there was no glory about war. 
at a much later period of his career, he declared that he did not understand what was meant by national prestige. He had to prepare a war budget, but even in the speech which introduced it, he took care to express the profound dislike he felt to any war that was not actually inevitable. Much, no doubt, of the misery which the war entailed was due to the fact that many of those who, like Mr. Gladstone, were dragged into accepting it had no heart in the war policy and no sympathy with it. The Prime Minister of England himself, Lord Aberdeen, was anxious to the very last to keep out of the war. The trouble in all such cases is that patriotic Englishmen naturally shrink from abandoning the public service of their country at a time when the country is on the eve of a great campaign. Lord Aberdeen and Mr. Gladstone remained, therefore, at their posts after the war broke out. There is not now, I believe, a single responsible public man in England who does not utterly condemn the policy of that most unfortunate war. To England it brought nothing but loss and misery. There was no glory to be gained out of it, even if England had wanted glory of that kind. Never before in all her warlike history had England been so poorly served by her commanders in the field. No Henry V was there, no Duke of Marlborough, no Duke of Wellington. The suffering inflicted on Englishmen was not the work of the enemy, it was the work of their own military administration. The mismanagement, the perverse blundering, the utter incapacity of those who looked after the army on the field were absolutely without precedent. The whole commissariat and hospital organization utterly broke down. England, as Mr. George Russell very truly says, lost some 24,000 men of whom five-sixths died from preventable disease and the want of proper food, clothing, and shelter. With the help of the French and Sardinians, the English army defeated the Russians time after time. Yet, when the whole war was over and done, only one great name came out of it, and that was the name of the Russian general Todleben, who defended Sebastopol. If I were to mention in succession the names of the English commanders, very few of my readers now would know about whom I was talking. The war propped up, for a short time, the fabric of the French Second Empire. It made the fortune of the House of Piedmont. Count Cavour, not caring three straws about either Turkey or Russia, had seen his opportunity with the eye of genius and volunteered the alliance of Sardinia, and so obtained a right of representation at the Congress of Paris, where terms of peace were made, and thus laid the foundation of a united Italy under the House of Savoy. But for England, the war did nothing whatever except to bring vast loss of treasure and vast sacrifice of gallant lives. No question in which we were concerned was settled by that war. What is called the Eastern Question remains unsettled still, or rather, indeed, I should say, 
that it is in a far worse condition now than it was before the Crimean War broke out. The Ottoman government, for whose sake we spent so much money and so much blood, has lately proved itself the most savage and tyrannical government known in civilization and commits its Armenian massacres under our very eyes, metaphorically at least, and without the slightest regard to our expostulations. England fostered the Turkish government to be an outrage upon civilization and a defiance to England herself. We were fighting, said Mr. Bright, for a hopeless cause and a worthless ally. Meantime, the condition of the English troops in the Crimea began to be a public scandal and horror. Mr. Roebuck announced in the House of Commons his intention to move for the appointment of a select committee to inquire into the state of our army before Sebastopol and into the conduct of those departments of the government whose duty it has been to minister to the wants of that army. There was no serious possibility of resisting such a motion. Such was the conviction of Lord John Russell, who instantly resigned his place in the cabinet. Mr. Gladstone did not see his way to resign in the face of the debate and division which was about to take place. He even defended to the best of his power the policy and conduct of the administration. The result of the division was a majority of 157 against the government. The ministry of Lord Aberdeen, the coalition ministry as it was called, broke down as a natural result of this declaration of the majority of the House of Commons. The Queen sent for Lord Derby, who tried to form an administration but could not succeed. He offered a place to Mr. Gladstone, but Mr. Gladstone declined it. Two other eminent Peelites, as they were called, Sir James Graham and Mr. Sidney Herbert, also refused to accept office under Lord Derby. All three gave as a reason that they had opposed the motion for a sort of amateur inquiry into the military organization in the Crimea, and that they could not countenance it by becoming members of the government. There was nothing for it but to make Lord Palmerston prime minister. The Peelites were willing to join him, but on the understood condition that the amateur inquiry was not to take place. Mr. Gladstone was offered the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer and accepted the office. Lord Palmerston had once described himself very correctly as, under the conditions, the inevitable Prime Minister. Mr. Gladstone was certainly the inevitable Chancellor of the Exchequer. He is indispensable, said a keen observer at the time, if only because any other Chancellor of the Exchequer would be torn into pieces by him. It has to be observed that this was the first time that Gladstone consented to take office under a Whig leader. This was, therefore, a distinct advance on the way to liberalism first and to radicalism afterwards. Lord Palmerston, of course, was not much of a liberal and was nothing of a radical. Still, he stood up as an opponent to Toryism and professed to be a man of progress and therefore when Gladstone joined his cabinet, there was clear evidence that Gladstone had done forever with the stern and unbending Tories.
of whom, according to Macaulay, he was once the rising hope. He did not, however, serve for long under the new government. As I have said, Lord Palmerston's administration was formed on the understanding that Mr. Roebuck's demand for a sort of amateur inquiry into the carrying on of the Crimean War was not to be granted. Lord Palmerston, however, soon saw that the country would not be satisfied without some form of inquiry. The mind and heart of England were sick and sore because of the stories of military maladministration and easily avoidable disaster. Palmerston consented to the inquiry, and thereupon Mr. Gladstone, Sir James Graham, and Mr. Sidney Herbert resigned office. They had been members of Lord Palmerston's cabinet about three weeks. Sir George Cornwall Lewis became Chancellor of the Exchequer in place of Mr. Gladstone. Gladstone took his seat on one of the back benches, behind the bench on which the members of the government have their places. I have many times seen him rise from that seat and heard him criticize the financial schemes of his successor. His criticisms had, it is needless to say, life and vigor in them. He was a master of every subject which could be included in a budget. He knew all the details of every question. He could, at any moment, pour out a flood of criticism which dissolved the proposals of an opponent as a stream of corrosive acid might have done. I must say for myself that I always had a very high idea of the ability of Sir George Cornwall Lewis. He is a man who is almost wholly forgotten in our time, but I am convinced that he was one of the most thoroughly intellectual men of his day. I know that it may fairly be asked of me, how could a man come to be forgotten if he had said or done anything worth remembering? All I can say is that I quite admit the fact that Sir George Lewis is personally forgotten, but I insist upon it that he seemed to me to have one of the greatest intellects of his time, and I know that some of his sayings, witty and sarcastic, humorous and profound, have passed into our common literature and our common talk, and are quoted every day by people who have some faint notion that they are citations from Dean Swift or Sidney Smith. Lewis had a miserably poor voice, and had no ideas about elocution, and the House of Commons hardly ever takes to a man whom it is difficult to understand or follow. In no case whatever could he have been an equal of Mr. Gladstone in financial argument, and must have had a hard time of it very often while under the criticism of Mr. Gladstone. There was, I am sure, a great deal of the genuine philosopher about him, and I have little doubt that he said to himself now and again, I am no match for Gladstone, and I know it. I have not the voice, or the fluency, or the eloquence, but there's one thing I can do. I can thoroughly admire Gladstone and admit his superiority. Gladstone, however, did not confine himself to criticisms merely of financial policy. He showed himself an independent critic on all subjects which aroused in him any question of principle. He made a great speech in the important debate on the manner in which the English authorities had behaved toward the Chinese in the once famous question of the Lorcha Arrow. The government was defeated on that question and Parliament was dissolved. 
but Lord Palmerston was quite safe. He had appealed to what may be called the jingo feeling of the country. He had denounced the Chinese governor of Canton as an insolent barbarian, and he came back into power with a strong majority. Mr. Gladstone was returned without opposition for the University of Oxford. He seemed to many observers somewhat depressed and disgusted by the condition of affairs, and the triumph of Lord Palmerston over what appeared to Mr. Gladstone to be moral principle and national honor. On June the 3rd, 1857, we find it noted in Mr. Greville's journal that Gladstone hardly ever goes near the House of Commons and never opens his lips. He was destined, however, before long to open his lips to some purpose. The divorce bill was introduced by the government, and there was no subject in human affairs on which Gladstone felt stronger convictions than the introduction of a measure to make divorce cheap and easy. It is quite certain that Gladstone never liked being under the leadership of Lord Palmerston. It is quite certain that he was glad just at this time to be released from such a leadership. The natures of the two men were totally unlike. One was earnest about everything. The other was earnest about nothing. But we may fairly assume that Gladstone, having so suddenly withdrawn from Lord Palmerston's administration, was not anxious, was indeed very unwilling, to start up in opposition to his late leader. The divorce bill was, however, too much for him, and he felt that he was bound to stand up and bear testimony against it. It was not likely in any case that such a man as Gladstone could remain long away from the House of Commons, or being there could hold his peace forever. At several periods in Mr. Gladstone's career, there came a short season during which he seemed to have practically withdrawn from parliamentary life, during which he seldom came near the House of Commons and never opened his lips there. Such a season never could have occurred in the career of a man like Lord Palmerston or Mr. Disraeli. Palmerston and Disraeli lived for the House of Commons and in the House of Commons. To attend its debates was a necessity to either man's existence. It was not so with Mr. Gladstone. He went to the House of Commons because it gave him an opportunity of advocating some great measure of national importance or of opposing some scheme which he believed to be wrong. Every short secession came to an end the moment when Mr. Gladstone saw that there was work which he ought to do. In 1857, Mr. Gladstone found himself drawn back to the House by his determination to oppose the divorce bill which was brought in by Lord Palmerston's government. He fought this bill through its every stage with characteristic and indomitable energy. He spoke incessantly in the debates on the measure, and he fought it with a spirit and with a mastery of detail which aroused the wonder even of those who knew him best. He opposed the measure, first of all, upon the high ground of principle. He contended that marriage was not only or mainly an arrangement of the nature of a civil contract, like the hiring of a house or the setting up of a mercantile partnership. 
he refused to admit for a moment the idea that marriage could be anything but a mystery of the Christian religion. He appealed to the law of God as to the inviolable sanctity of the marriage tie. That bond, he said, could not be severed in such a manner as to allow either of the parties to marry again. This was his first line of defense, and he sustained his position with splendid eloquence and perseverance. Now the House of Commons is not an assembly which is easily to be influenced or impressed by considerations of so exalted a nature. It is usually, and for the most part, a prosaic, man-of-the-world, half-cynical sort of assembly, which is inclined to take human beings pretty much as they are commonly found in clubs and drawing-rooms and on race-courses, and is rather impatient of any appeal to what may be called the higher law. Yet it cannot be doubted that the magnificence of Mr. Gladstone's eloquence enthralled the House for the time, although it could not, in the end, carry the division. The most light-minded members of the House listened in breathless admiration to those noble appeals to the higher law for which nobody, so well as he, could have obtained a hearing. Every one must admit that whether he was practically right or wrong, he took in his argument the loftiest position that statesmanship or morality could occupy. He fought his battle, not only in the House of Commons, but also in the public press. Mr. Gladstone has always, at every great crisis of his career, championed his cause in the journals and the reviews, as well as on the public platform and in the House of Commons. He put his principles very clearly and emphatically in an article which appeared in the Quarterly Review in which he says, Our Lord has emphatically told us that at and from the beginning marriage was perpetual and was on both sides single. From these opinions, Mr. Gladstone has never since receded in the least. He has changed his views on many subjects, but on this question his opinions have undergone no change. When he had fought the bill on its main principle, and then endeavored to have it postponed for fuller public examination and discussion, and had been beaten on both those issues, he next applied himself to amend the bill on its passage through committee. As everyone knows, the actual principle of a bill is determined on its second reading in the House of Commons. That principle is then taken to be established, and thereupon the bill goes into committee to be amended or modified or made worse in its details. Mr. Gladstone applied himself to an unceasing effort for the elimination from the bill of what seemed to him its worst and most offensive purposes. He pointed out, for instance, that there was a fundamental injustice in that part of the bill which would entitle the husband to obtain a divorce from an unfaithful wife because of a single act of infidelity, but which did not give the same right to the wife against the husband and did not entitle her to obtain a divorce unless the husband had been physically cruel as well as morally unfaithful. The debates in committee were conducted on the part of the government by the Attorney General Sir Richard Bethel, afterwards Lord Westbury, one of the keenest and ablest lawyers ever known in the House of Commons. Sir Richard Bethel was master of every statute and every clause, 
which could have any bearing on the subject, and he had an unfailing resource of acrid and even vitriolic sarcasm. It might well have been thought by many people that even Mr. Gladstone, with all his eloquence, would be no match for such an antagonist on that antagonist's own ground. But Mr. Gladstone never in his whole life showed more marvelous fighting power than he put forward in this long controversy. To every reply he had his rejoinder. To every citation of authority he had another citation at the tip of his tongue. His wonderful gift of memory came into surprising play. He could repeat whole passages from a statute without a scrap of note to assist him. One might have thought to hear him that he had given up his entire life to the study of the marriage laws of various ages and nations and had never allowed his attention to be distracted from the subject by finance or politics or the reading of Homer. He did succeed in obtaining some slight improvements in the measure, but the bill in its main provisions was passed in spite of all his resistance. Old members of the House of Commons will tell you to this day of the effect produced by those splendid passages of arms. Bethel, they all say, was great, but Gladstone was greater, and it was Bethel's own ground and not Gladstone's. The bill was passed into law, and Mr. Gladstone has never ceased to condemn it. Something, of course, has to be said for the bill. If we consent to come down from that lofty religious principle which Mr. Gladstone maintained, and which some of the great churches of the world have always maintained. It has to be said that divorce existed in England long before the passing of the act Mr. Gladstone opposed, but it was divorce obtained after a very different fashion. A divorce could be obtained, first of all, by proving the offense in a court of law, and then by passing a bill through both Houses of Parliament, to give effect to the judgment of the court of law by the dissolution of the marriage. This was an immensely costly process, and it made divorce the luxury of the very rich. Mr. Gladstone did not find his conscience or his mind attracted by the prospect of facility or cheapness. End of chapter 16